All right, well, Genesis chapter 17, verse 1, starts this way. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him, saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I will set up my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you greatly. The word covenant is used 13 times. In one chapter, Genesis chapter 17, 13 times across nine different verses, it comes from the Hebrew word berith, and it means a solemn agreement, a covenant. Covenant is a gigantic theme throughout the Bible. In fact, it's one of the main threads that holds the Old and New Testaments together. But there's some really important questions when it comes to the Old and New Covenants. The sign of the Old Covenant, we're going to find out here in Genesis 17, was the sign of circumcision, which is kind of weird to us, but it was a really big deal to the Israelites in the Old Testament. The sign of the New Covenant is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so there's all kinds of questions as you study the Bible. How are these two covenants related? How are we to understand the covenant of circumcision? Genesis 17 is where God's covenant with not only Abram, but all of his people for all time really begins to come into focus. In this chapter, God clarifies the covenant that he's made with Abram. And we're going to look at it in sequence. We're going to organize it under three phrases that God uses in this order. As for me, as for you, and as for your wife. So what's the first thing God says in clarifying his covenant with Abram? He says, as for me, verse three, then Abram fell face down and God spoke with him. As for me, here is my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. Your name will no longer be Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I will make you the father of many nations. I'll make you extremely fruitful and I will make nations and kings come from you. I will confirm my covenant that is between me and you and your future offspring throughout their generations. It is a permanent covenant to be your God and the God of your offspring after you. As for me, means this is what God is going to do. This is what God promises. So what is God going to do? Number one, he promises to give Abram descendants. Now, much of this is not new information. This is just reaffirming what God has already said in Genesis 12. God said Abram would be a great nation. He also said Abram will have offspring. In Genesis 13, he said Abram's offspring will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. In Genesis 15, he reiterates that. He says Abram's offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. In Genesis 16, he says Abram's Abram's descendants will come from his own body. So you're going to have all these descendants, and they're not going to be through the inheritance going to your servant Eleazar. You're going to have biological children. And so God is reaffirming what he's already told Abram. But there's some new information as well. So what's new in Genesis 17? God says, Abram will be the father of many nations. So previously he said, I will make you into a great nation. Now he says, you'll be the father of many nations, plural. This is why God changes Abram's name to Abraham. Abram means father, ironically because Abram is not a father. (laughs) He has no children, and he still has no children, but God says, you know what? Forget about this father stuff. You're going to be Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Changes his name. Going to be the father of many nations, plural. Now, how in the world does that work? How could multiple nations come from the lineage, the genealogy of one man? 
Paul says in Galatians, it's not only Jews who are descended from Abraham, but in Christ, even Gentiles are his descendants by faith. It says in Revelation that when Jesus returns and we, we're standing before the throne worshiping him, that there's going to be members of every tribe, tongue, and nation, all descended by faith through Abraham in Christ. God says kings will descend from Abram's lineage. This is also new. Most scholars believe this is primarily about Jesus. The reason for that is because God actually commanded the Israelites later that they were not to have a king. No kings. God is their king. When they demanded a king to be like their surrounding nations, God rebuked them, and he warned them about all the bad things that would happen when he gave them a king. But here, God says, no, kings are going to come from you, Abraham. And so this is pointing primarily to the coming of the Messiah, King Jesus, the King of Kings, through Abraham's descendants. And then God's covenant with Abraham through his descendants will last forever. This is what he says in Genesis 17. So that's the first thing God is going to do, as for me. Second thing God is going to do, number two, give Abraham the promised land. This is what it says in verse 8. And to you and your future offspring, I will give the land where you are residing. All the land of Canaan is a permanent possession. Again, this is not new information. This is reaffirming what God has already said. And these two things, the descendants and the land, have been the two main features of the covenant from chapters 12 through chapter 16. The offspring and the land, the descendants and the land. But in chapter 17, God reveals a third aspect of what he's going to do. Number three, God is going to give Abraham and his descendants himself himself. This is a new revelation. This is greater clarity about the covenant. He says, look again at verse 8, and to you and your offspring, I will give the land where you are residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. Go back to verse 7, the second half of the verse. He says, it is a permanent covenant to what? What's the agreement? The solemn agreement. A permanent covenant to be your God. That's the substance of the covenant. This is the promise I'm making. I will be your God and the God of your offspring after you. This is the heart of the covenant that's clarified in chapter 17. This is the aspect of the covenant that most ties the Old and New Testaments together. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, he says, I will be your God. In Jeremiah 31, When God is telling the nation of Israel about a new, better covenant that's coming in the future, he uses this same statement. Jeremiah 31, 33, he says, Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is the heart of the covenant. I will be your God. Now, we're not to view this as though there's like a smorgasbord of gods. (laughs) You know, there's all kinds of different options on the menu to choose from, and lucky you, you get Yahweh. You get the God of Abraham, the God of the Bible. He is your God. No, there's only one God. This is very clear from the scriptures. There's only one God. And what God is saying here is you get to know him. 
That's the promise. Abraham, you get to know me. You get to have a relationship with me. You get to live in my presence and walk with me the way Adam and Eve did in the garden before the fall. The way Enoch did in Genesis 5. The covenant is you get the presence and the person of God himself and all your descendants after you. I will be their God. Derek Kidner says, this is like saying I do in your marriage. This is like God saying I do to Abraham. God is saying I do to Abraham and his descendants. Kidner says in his commentary on Genesis, the pledge of I will be their God far outweighs the particular benefits. This is the covenant. God's covenant with his people begins with Abraham. And we know now 4,000 years later, it was fulfilled in Christ. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus, at the Last Supper with his disciples, he instituted the symbols of bread and wine. And you remember what he says. Luke twenty-two twenty. in the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What we've already seen in Genesis is that God's covenant with his people is one of unilateral blessing. It is a covenant of unilateral blessing. What does that mean? Well, it's unilateral means there's only one acting party in the covenant. In Genesis 15, when God initially establishes the covenant with Abraham, says this, when the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring. We already studied this, but just by way of reminder, you remember that this was an ancient ritual that was designed to ratify a covenant. They didn't have contracts. They didn't have a legal system. And so how, how do you make a solemn agreement, a really serious agreement between two or more parties? Well, they had this ritual. They would take animals. They would divide them in half. So they would kill the animal, cut it in half, and then they would walk between the animal. And typically, in this ritual, all of the parties in the agreement, they would walk between the halves of the animals. And this was symbolizing, if I break the terms of the agreement, let what happened to this animal happen to me. That was the idea. And so it's significant in Genesis 15, only God passes through the animals, meaning he's the only one making the agreement. God does everything. Abram does nothing. And it has to be unilateral because Abram and Sarai can't do anything to bring about the blessing, even if they wanted to. It's a unilateral blessing, a unilateral promise. God makes the commitment to them, not the other way around. God brings the blessing and he does it without any help. It is unilateral. Now, what are the blessings? Unilateral blessing. Well, we already looked at this. Descendants, land, and God himself. And so this makes sense that it has to be unilateral because Abram and Sarai are old, infertile foreigners. <laughs> and part of the blessing is you're going to get pregnant. And they can't get pregnant. And you're going to have this land. And they can't take over an entire nation, conquer a nation, they're old, infertile foreigners, and so God has to do it. The promise of God himself, of course, they can't just have God if God doesn't unilaterally act to give himself to them in relationship. It's a unilateral blessing. Now, we also know 
by reading the New Testament, that God's covenant with his people today works the same way. It works the same way. It is a unilateral blessing. So there's only one acting party. In the new covenant, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, God does everything and you do nothing. God freely gives you the blessings as a gift. You couldn't do anything to get them even if you wanted to. Now, what are the blessings? Well, there's many. Many blessings in the new covenant. Romans 4, verse 7 puts it this way. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Part of the blessing in Christ is forgiveness of sin. It's righteousness. It is salvation. It's a new nature, the Holy Spirit, eternal life. And there's many other different aspects to the blessing we have in Christ. But just like the old covenant, the main substance of the new covenant is a promise of the presence and person of God. Under the new covenant in Christ, what you get is God himself. That's what you get. In Christ, you get to know God. But first, you have to be made righteous. Because the Bible affirms, Old Testament and New, that God and sin are incompatible. God and sin are like fire and ice, and not just like a little campfire. Maybe if you had enough ice, you could overwhelm and subdue that campfire. It's like a raging forest fire and an ice cube. It's like you and God. (laughs) Sin and God cannot go together. God is holy. People are sinful. And God in His holiness has to punish sin. So that's, it's, it's not just that you can't be in God's presence if you're a sinner. You actually earn God's punishment in hell because of sin. This is what the Bible teaches. So how then, how in the world can you have God? How can you get God? How can you be in relationship with a holy God? The Bible says you have to be made righteous. You have to be made righteous. And the New Testament is clear. There's nothing you can do to make yourself righteous. So you're not righteous, and there's nothing you can do about it. You are sinful. All people are sinful. And sin is not like dirt. It's not like dirt. I think so many people, naturally, the way they view sin is it's like dirt. It's like mud. Committing sin, it's like, it's like getting dirty. So Friday night, I took my kids fishing. We like to go fishing. Mostly I like to go fishing. <laughs> so I drag them along. And the pond that we went to was pretty much surrounded by like waist-high grass and weeds. And it was a couple hundred yards walking through waist-high grass, so we're trying to get through all this brush. My five-year-old daughter, it's like up to her head. We finally get down to the pond, and it's one of those ponds where there's like a drop-off. So there's a ledge, drop-off, and then it's just water. And all around the pond, it's waist-high, grass, weeds. And so what we found was it was way easier to get around the shore of the pond by just getting in the water, taking our shoes off, getting in the water, walking in the muck, instead of going back out of the water and walking through the tick-infested grass. And so as you can imagine, by the time we got done fishing and catching bugs and tadpole eggs and stuff, we were very, very muddy. I have a picture of my daughter, Eleanor, from the other night. And you probably can't tell super well, but her feet are totally covered in mud. She's got mud all up her legs. All of her clothes are covered in mud. Her shoes are covered in mud. Just mud everywhere. So we were very dirty. 
and we were also very stinky. Pond mud is not like normal mud. <laughs> so in a pond, when the weeds die, when the fish die, when the turtles die, when everything that is alive in the pond dies, it has nowhere to go. And so it just settles on the bottom and it decomposes and it's very stinky mud. And so we were very muddy, very stinky. And when we got home, the first thing I did is I hit all the kids with the garden hose, <laughs> which they didn't like very much. I did it to myself too, to be fair. But we were so dirty, we couldn't even go in the house. It's like, we got a hose off first, then we got inside, everyone took showers, changed our clothes, and then we were all clean. And I think a lot of people, they view sin like that. Like you, you, you sin, you do stuff, and it's nasty and it's dirty, and sometimes it goes on for a long time, and you get really covered in mud and muck, and you stink, and the solution is you just need to get cleaned up. You just need to stop sinning, start going to church, and then do it consistently. Hit yourself with the hose at first, or, you know, then, then you start doing really holy stuff like reading your Bible, not saying swear words, hanging out with Christians, it's like taking a shower, getting some clean clothes on, and eventually you'll be righteous. The Bible says that's not how sin works at all. In fact, if that's how you're trying to solve the problem of your sin, you will for sure go to hell. That's what Paul says in Galatians. Sin is a lot more like DNA than it is like dirt. You guys know what DNA is? I'm not a biologist, but my understanding is DNA is information that resides in the nucleus of each cell of your body. You have like billions or trillions of cells that make up your body, and each one has DNA. It's information that determines just about everything about your physical body, and you can't change it. It'd be like if I said, hey, make yourself taller. <laughs> just be taller. Or if you have brown eyes, hey, you've got brown eyes, change your eye color to blue. Not like put in weird blue contacts. Just change the color of your physical eyeballs. You can't do it. Even if you wanted to, you can't do that. And sin is like that. It infects and affects your whole nature from the inside out. And so the Bible says what you need is to be changed. You need to be altered from the inside out. You need a new nature. And God gives you that nature in Christ. On the cross, Jesus took the guilt of your sin on his body and he was punished. He died in your place. He took your guilt. And He offers you His innocence. He took your sin and He offers you His righteousness. He took your death and He offers you eternal life. And it's all a free gift. You do nothing. God does everything. It is unilateral blessing. And so we see the nature of the new covenant already in the old covenant in Genesis 17. But here's where things get a bit more confusing. God says, as for you, Abram, as for me, here's what I'm going to do. As for you, verse 9, God also said to Abraham, as for you, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations are to keep my covenant. As for you means this is what you're going to do. And all of your offspring after you, this is what they're going to do as well. Now, what is Abraham to do? Number one, Keep the covenant and teach his descendants to keep it. So this is new. In Genesis 17, the covenant up to this point has been totally unilateral. 
meaning there's nothing for Abraham to do. But now God says, you have to keep the covenant. What does that mean? Verse 10, this is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. Probably not what Abraham was expecting, (laughs) would be my guess. Circumcision means to cut off. That's what the word means. Verse 11, God clarifies. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Throughout your generations, every male among you is to be circumcised at eight days old. Every male born in your household or purchased from any foreigner and not your offspring. Whether born in your household or purchased, he must be circumcised. My covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. If any male is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now, why in the world is this what God wants Abraham to do? How are we to understand this? What is the significance of circumcision? Well, there's a lot of questions, but there's a few things that you need to understand first. Number one, circumcision is the sign of the covenant, not the substance. This is probably the most important thing that you need to know about the old covenant. It is the sign of the covenant, not the substance. And God clearly says this. Verse 11, you must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. The sign points to the reality. For example, if you've ever been to some sort of amazing landmark in the United States, you have seen this play out. We'll use the example of Mount Rushmore. Raise your hand if you've ever been to Mount Rushmore. That's awesome. I'm jealous. I've never been to Mount Rushmore, but I was doing a little reading about Mount Rushmore this week. And as you're driving into the state park where Mount Rushmore is located, you're going to come to this sign right here. Mount Rushmore National Memorial. Now that's a pretty nice sign. (laughs) I mean, it's like 10 feet tall. It's made out of some beautiful stonework. Very good looking sign as signs go. But how many of you, show of hands, would drive 10 hours from here to South Dakota to see that sign? Nobody. (laughs) I wouldn't drive 10 minutes to see that sign. (laughs) Because it's just a sign. Nobody goes to the Mount Rushmore National Memorial to see the sign. The sign just lets you know you're in the ballpark. You're almost there. This is the way to get to the monument itself, which is a monument of four of the greatest American presidents' faces carved into the side of a mountain. (laughs) Now, that is something worth driving 10 hours to see. I mean, it's like the most American thing ever. They just blasted the side of a mountain with dynamite to carve the faces of American presidents. And circumcision is only a sign. That's the first thing you need to know. It's only a sign that points to a much more important reality. Number two, circumcision was primarily about the condition of the heart. And this is not just a revelation in the New Testament. This was the case from the very beginning. Circumcision was about the condition of the heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. In Jeremiah 4, verse 4, 
He says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. And he's saying this to Israelites who already are physically circumcised. And he says, no, no, you're not circumcised because your heart needs to change. Circumcision points first to a heart that acknowledges and turns from sin. What is the heart condition that circumcision is a sign of? A heart that acknowledges and turns from sin. It's an attitude that says, my sin makes me incompatible with God. And I can't just wash it off like mud. It actually has to be removed from me forcibly, externally. Some outside force has to actually cut my sin away from me. This is an attitude of humility. Jesus taught this same principle. And we see this in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 4. He says your heart needs to be circumcised. Jesus said, Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. And Jesus' point was that to know God, you must first know you can't know God on your own. You don't deserve to know God. You have no money with which to buy righteousness. You cannot earn it. You don't deserve blessing at all. You can't earn it. You can't buy it. It must be given to you. Circumcision also points to a heart that loves and worships God. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, verse 1, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. This is sort of an introductory statement to everything else that God is about to say. Some translations say, walk with me and be blameless. This is getting at what Jesus says in the great commandment. In Matthew 22, he's asked, what is the great commandment? Greatest commandment in all of the law and the prophets. Jesus says, this is the greatest commandment. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In the Old Testament, they would often refer to this attitude as walking with God, living in the presence of God. And so a circumcised heart rejects sin and the world and pursues God in relationship. Circumcision also points to a heart that is irreversibly transformed. I love this picture. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. It is a picture of irreversible change. It's like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. We like to raise caterpillars every year. We, we actually keep milkweed. Most people, if you get milkweed in your garden, you pluck it like a weed. We like to let it grow because that's where the monarchs will lay their little eggs. And every year, we'll raise a few monarch caterpillars. And it's incredible to watch it go from this little black and yellow worm, squishy, kind of cute, and then it changes. It, it goes through this process of metamorphosis. And once a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, it's just obvious to everyone, that's irreversible. Like you can't go back and forth between the two. It, it's something that can't be undone. And it's a picture of what happens when God saves someone in Christ. The New Testament says when you put your faith in Christ, that the way Abram put his faith in God's promise in Genesis 15, Paul equates the two in Romans chapter 4. God makes you righteous. It's something that is done to you. When you turn from sin and trust Jesus' atoning death on the cross for your sin, the Bible says you become 
an entirely new creation. There's a transformation that's irreversible that takes place. Jesus calls this being born again in John chapter 3. Many commentators believe this is why God commanded infants to be circumcised on the eighth day. It doesn't say this explicitly, but the eighth day often in the scriptures is representative of recreation. So in, in six days, God created the world. On the seventh day, he rested. But then because of sin, the world needed to be recreated. There's like a new first day with Noah and his family. There's eight people on the ark that God saved through the flood. Jesus was resurrected on the seventh day plus one. So it, it was the first day of the week after the Sabbath day. So in one sense, it was the eighth day. And so commentators think the eighth day signifies God's recreation. Circumcision is symbolic. It points to an irreversible heart change. Number three, circumcision made God's people distinct from the surrounding pagan nations. This would become very important later. And number four, circumcision was taken very seriously under the old covenant. Verse 14 says, if any male is not circumcised, in the flesh of his foreskin, that man will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So this was a very, very serious thing under the old covenant. It wasn't just about the heart. It was mostly about the heart, but certainly the physical act of circumcision was to be practiced. God wasn't messing around with this instruction. If it wasn't practiced, that person would be cut off from God himself and the people of God. Next, God says, as for your wife. So as for me, as for you, as for your wife. Verse 15, God said to Abraham, as for your wife, Sarai, do not call her Sarai, for Sarah will be her name. I will bless her. Indeed, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she will produce nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. As for your wife, so what will God do for Sarah? This is what he's saying. As for your wife, this is what I'm going to do for Sarah. She's going to be blessed in the same way as Abraham. She will bear a son. His name will be Isaac, and she will become nations. Nations will descend from her, and even kings of nations will descend from her. And so God finally clarifies in chapter 17, the promises are for you, Abraham, and they're also for your wife. They're also for Sarah. Now, I think this was implied the whole time. But obviously, Genesis chapter 16, Abraham and Sarah, they didn't quite get this, or they were at least struggling to trust it. And so here God says it explicitly. He says nations and kings are going to come from her, not just from you, Abraham. And this is signified by a change in her name as well. Now, it's a little confusing because Sarai and Sarah are actually just older and newer versions of the same name. So unlike with Abraham, there's actually a meaning change. It goes from father to father of multitudes. Sarai and Sarah mean the same thing. They both mean princess. That's what Sarah means. And the idea is God is, God is reaffirming, hey, your name was princess, it's still princess. Your name is uh, like, he's, he's reaffirming and God names her. Presumably her parents named her when she was baby. Here God says, your name is princess. It's still princess. And the idea is princesses bear sons who become kings. 
When princesses have sons, those sons become kings. Which means the son of the promise, Isaac, is going to be conceived by your 89-year-old wife, Abraham. That's what God is saying. Your 89-year-old, totally infertile wife who you've been married to for over 60 years. All of this is going to happen through her. And the sequence here is very important because God has just given Abraham his first commandment within the covenant. He says, you must be circumcised. And if any of your descendants are not circumcised, they're cut off, they're not part of the covenant people. And this raises a very big question. What is the relationship between faith and works? You remember Genesis 15 says that Abraham believed God. Abram then believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And here, God says, Abraham, you need to be circumcised. What is the relationship between salvation and obedience? Righteousness and obedience. There's other questions that come just... You don't have to read the New Testament to have these questions. You just read in the text from Genesis 1 to Genesis 17, you're thinking, are are the promises, is the covenant still unilateral? God does everything to accomplish the blessing. You do nothing. Or now, is it that you have to sprinkle in some obedience to get the blessing? Like God does most of it, but you've got to do a little bit. Well, God's clarification that the son of the promise will come from Sarah is a powerful reminder. The sequence is important. Abraham... You do nothing. I do everything. Salvation comes only through faith in God's promises, not through obedience. And this is exactly what Paul argues in Romans 4. In Romans 4, Paul says this, verse 7, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now he's talking about the new covenant in Christ. He's talking about forgiveness of sins, righteousness, the Holy Spirit, eternal life that we already talked about. But then he connects the new covenant with the old. He says this, verse 9, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. Now here's the point of that really long paragraph that says circumcision a lot. (laughs) Here's the idea. A heart of faith that receives righteousness in Christ and walks in the presence of God by grace is a circumcised heart. That's the idea. This is the clear teaching of both the Old and New Testament. Circumcision comes after faith as a result of faith. That's the relationship. It comes after faith as a result of faith. But then that begs the question, why command this weird, very difficult practice at all? Well, there's 
a lot of cultural reasons that we're not going to get into. God was marking his people as distinct. There's other reasons. But here's the main application of the passage that we'll close with. One application. What do you do with this if you're a Christian living in the year 2023? You need to understand that internal faith is always demonstrated by external obedience. This is the point. Internal faith is always demonstrated by external obedience. One of the most pervasive lies in our culture when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to evangelical Christianity, is that you can believe Jesus died for you. You can believe Jesus died to forgive you of sin. You can receive that forgiveness and eternal life in the Spirit of God, and then you can just binge Netflix for the next 50 years until you go to heaven. So many people think that way. And it's not true, brothers and sisters. It is not true. If you really believe that God has rescued you from sin and death and hell, and you can walk with Him in a relationship and live in His presence, you will not be indifferent about His commands. You just won't be. You will not be indifferent about His mission to seek and save a lost world. So what is the relationship between salvation and obedience? Obedience does not produce salvation, not even close. It's so clear from both the Old and New Testament, but salvation does produce obedience. Genuine faith will result in a life dedicated to working hard for God's glory and God's mission. Not, because, not, not so that you can be saved or you can be made righteous, but because you already have been. And it's a heart that says, what more could I want than to walk with God and know Him and make Him known and glorify Him and enjoy a relationship with Him? How do you enjoy a relationship with a person? I mean, think about this. I don't have a single friend that I don't care about the things that they care about. It's not how relationships work. You're just using somebody at that point. If you really love someone, you care about what they love. It matters to you because it matters to them. So how can you love God? How can you know Him and walk with Him and have a relationship with Him and not care about the things that are on His heart? As much as God loves you and died for you, He's trying to save and rescue an entire world, billions of people who don't know Him. That will be on your heart if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk more about that next week, but just to close, I want to encourage you to examine What is your attitude towards God's commands? Just right now in your life, what is your attitude like towards the commands of God? Salvation is a free gift, but Jesus says that the cost to follow Him is very high. It's very high. And if you love Him, if you've been saved by Him, if you've been born again, then you will gladly pay that cost. Because I want to walk with my Savior. I want to know Him. I want to know the power of his resurrection, Paul says. But the way you know that is through suffering. It's through walking with him where he went, which was to the cross. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just your grace. God, when we reflect on the reality that we do nothing, we've earned nothing except for guilt and punishment. God, we don't deserve your love. We don't deserve your favor. And yet you give us those things. 
And you don't just give us forgiveness. You give us blessing. You make us a part of your family. We can be sons and daughters of the King. We can sit at your table. We can have an inheritance in your kingdom forever. That's what you offer us in Christ. It's mind-blowing. And we do nothing. We deserve nothing. God, your love for us is overwhelming. The blessing that you've extended to us is overwhelming. God, I pray that you'd help us to be undistracted. Sensitize our hearts to that reality, Lord. God, I pray that, that as a church here, these men and women, our souls would sing because of the gospel, because of your love for us. So that when in love and in infinite wisdom and goodness you ask us to do hard things, we don't hesitate even for a second. God, that we, we would love, we would revel in the opportunity to obey you in faith because of what you've done for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.